Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom. So we have our Torah portion this week, which is Kitisa. And again, we're focusing more on this series, The Footsteps of Messiah. And we're trying to take the Torah portions as we move through and kind of fuse them together with our weekly lessons we've been having on the Song of Songs and the prophecies about the footsteps of Messiah in the Song of Songs. And so this week it fell, just like last week, very harmoniously together. So we've got kitisa, which you can translate it a few different ways. When you elevate, um, like lifting up the head, when you elevate. And what we're going to do, again, we're going to try to hook in here some prophecies about the fall of the house of Ahab. Because last week, I think we set a pretty good foundation for anybody that hasn't been following the series and we looked at the foxes, the little foxes, that particular paradigm, which brings us why it's, to why it's so important to stand in the gaps in the wall. Because if the wall is built up and there are watchmen or watchwomen on the wall, we'll look at a scripture for that. If the watchmen are in place, then there's no reason the little foxes or the foxes or anything else should be able to get into the vineyard to spoil the vines or the Actually, the blossoms, it talks about the little blossoms, the immature believers. They're in blossom. They haven't yet made into a cluster. And so this is when the fox tries to cut them down before they have matured, which if you've been horsing around for 10 years in the Torah, then you, you might be beating a dead horse at this point. It's time to, to begin to mature. And this is why we have such an importance on the parable of the fig tree. If you're not ripening, if you're not a ripe fruit, then Yeshua says, woe to those who are nursing in those days. If, if you're just a baby, if you're still on the bottle, then that's not going to be a good scene for you. And because the fox always goes after what is immature. In Revelation, the stars fall out of the sky, it says, like unripe figs. So if you were a believer, if you were a fig, if you're part of the fig tree Israel, just like you're part of the vineyard Israel, if you have failed to mature, then you can be shaken out of the sky in a time of tribulation. There's not very much holding you to the tree. But we've seen, I think, over the past couple of years, we've had a blessing of COVID to the believer because where everybody else is hearing tribulation and bad news, we're hearing the footsteps of Messiah. We're hearing that good news on the mountains being proclaimed to us and saying, okay, it's time to bring this to the, the destination. We all started at some point in the past. Some of us have moved faster than others. Um, and by the way, thank you. We moved a lot of rocks around that didn't need to be moved so you could move faster. Okay, let's look at the bright side. Uh, <laughs> yes, and this is why I have a bad back. <laughs> Moving rocks unnecessarily in the kingdom. But we were busy, right? We were finding out what worked and what didn't. And so where we didn't really have a precedent other than the first century, and those people aren't around to talk to. All we have is their letters, which are pretty one-sided. So we're moving ahead now. And when you elevate, 
is the theme of Kitisa, and there's, there's several things in there. And as an overview, when we talk about elevation, by the way, one of the primary resurrection passages will be found in this particular Torah portion. We're not going to go into that passage. But when you elevate is the clue to us about being caught up together in the clouds. This is one of the primary texts. I want to look at something else, though, because we want to get prepared for that gathering together, right? What if we're not prepared and we just completely miss the shofar because we think it's a horn on a car outside honking? Why does that horn keep honking? You know, what's all the traffic about? You might completely misunderstand what that shofar call is. So the key to elevation is what we're going to find out today. It's Shabbat. That is the key. And so we're going to talk about the Shabbat elevator. Right? When you elevate, well, we're on the Shabbat elevator. We're going up. That's the good news. But Shabbat, how many of you think you can actually help the Creator? You can. He wants you to. That's why He created you. He wants your help on something. Now, does He need your help? No. But He wants your help. And so Shabbat, when we get on that Shabbat elevator, which the Shabbat elevator is something different in Israel, by the way. Uh, <laughs> when we get on the Shabbat elevator, we are actually helping the creator of the universe. So just to kind of show where we're coming from, kind of the paradigm we're working with, we can find it in the smichut, or the placement of two passages in Kitisa. Now, what is smichut? Sounds like a fancy Hebrew word, right? Or just a hard-to-pronounce Hebrew word. It means where you put something. Where you place it is important. Has anybody ever come in your house and moved things around without your permission and it didn't sit very well with you? <laughs> Not and live, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was important. I'll remember that if... <laughs> Because that's not where you put that thing. It had a reason it was right there. Same with Scripture. There is no random placement of Scriptures. They are where they are for a reason. One structure you might be familiar with is chiasms, a chiastic structure. And I'm not going to teach you a chiastic structure if you don't know it. You can go back and look it up. What I am going to give you is two visual examples if you're not familiar with it. So you can see when I say smichut, what I'm talking about. And so it's basically a mirror. Uh, you might read a story in scripture, and then all of a sudden it seems like the story is reversing. The very same story, sometimes almost, well, identical verses. You'll see that in the Song of Songs, uh, where they're identical verses, arise my love, that sort of thing. When that happens, you know you're reading a chiasm. So what you have to do is kind of work your way back, find the pairs until you find the central axis. When you find the middle of the story, then you have found the essence. You have found the theme of the story, as your English teacher would say. So here's a couple of examples. Like I said, I'm not going to teach it, but you can go look it up. So here's the easiest ones. The whole book of Daniel is written in a chiasm. It's, uh, you can divide it up by chapters. And you can see how they match with the Gentile world empires. It's, that's what it starts with. That's what it ends with. It goes into the Gentile persecution of Israel. Well, you can see that's going to come up in chapter 6. And so you keep working backward until you find the middle of Daniel, chapters 4 and 5. And what you'll find is divine providence over the Gentiles. And this would, of course, be the wicked ones. 
okay? Another one, the whole book of Revelation, it's written in a chiasm, right? A little longer, but you can see the structure because I put it in colors where you could match the colors. And if you want to go back later and look those up in Revelation, you can see how they match. That's what I mean when I say smichut. How we placed it on the page, this section is going to help you decode this section. And if you really want to know the meat of the matter, then you go to the axis. You go to the woman, the male son, and the dragon of Revelation, and it'll tell you what the whole book is about. Okay? Now, I want to talk about a different kind of smichut. This one has to do with putting two passages right next to one another. And sometimes they don't seem like they fit especially as you get into the, the mishpatim, the laws and so forth, you're seeing like, these are just random laws. They're not. There's patterns there if we look for them. In Kitisa, what we have is this placement right next to one another of the observance of Shabbat and the golden calf. Not random, not accident. What you have is the first feast, Shabbat, and why it's important to keep the Shabbat. And then, to show you an example of what Shabbat is not, it gives you the example of the golden calf and the alternate feast that was introduced with the golden calf. With the golden calf and idolatry will come alternate feasts eventually. It's just a matter of time. So putting those two together doesn't show you that, oh, these are both okay, they're just like the other. It tells you that these are the opposites of one another. The opposite of idol worship is Shabbat. The opposite of Shabbat is idol worship and alternate feasts. They might be an alternate day, an alternate time. Like with Jeroboam, it was a month off, alternate places. But it will have much of the same trappings, right? In time of Jeroboam, they're going to add all these other gods, but were they still worshiping yod heh Sure, they mixed it all in there. So... The lesson that we can take away from this is that if we forsake the Shabbat, then we have created a breach in the wall. And that's the thing about our Shabbats and our feasts. Every feast is going to have at least one high Sabbath. Jerusalem is built of stones. There are foundation stones of the temple, and we are part of that. We are precious stones. And so when we assemble on Shabbat and when we assemble on the feast, that is us putting our stone in the wall. If you're not here on Shabbat, what's missing? You are missing, and you are that stone in the wall that is missing. You left a hole in the wall. What goes through holes in the wall? Critters, yes, absolutely critters. Foxes, little foxes, all sorts of predators can move in and out of the wall if you are absent. Now, I'm not saying if you're sick. Come on, you know, spread, spread the wealth. Don't do that. Use good sense. But on any normal Shabbat, there is no good reason for you not to be holding your position in the wall. No good reason. And that's the suggestion that if, if to you, Shabbat is a casual thing, you might be present, you might not. You might participate, you might not. You might obey, you might not. Then you might or might not be in the wall when Yeshua comes back. Because if you chose to be a rock that's somewhere else, that he tried to build you up. Remember the, the disciples being very proud of how the stones, like, look how beautiful the stones of the temple are. And he says, not one's going to be left on top of another. Because how many times I would have gathered you, but you would not. If you will not gather, then you can't be in the wall. 
If you're not in the wall, then the predators are going back and forth. You either want to be part of that process, you either want to be a helper or you don't. And if you want to help, you have to be present for Shabbat. Now, a stronger message there because of the positioning. If you choose not to be present, spirit, soul, and body, for Shabbat, then you are choosing idolatry. That's strong, but it's true. It's, it's in the text. I didn't make that up. It's in the text. You either choose the golden calf or you choose Shabbat. You either choose his appointed feast or you choose the golden calf. It's black and white, up or down on the Shabbat elevator, right? Let's keep going up. Right? And so I'm not going to read all this to you. You've already read it before. It's in the Torah portion, Exodus 31, 12 through 32, 6. Just to show you, this is the Sabbath. The part I do want to read, it says, you shall surely, is he kidding? Surely observe my Sabbath, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. And I'm going to skip down. So the children of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. That is the meat of the matter. So this particular passage, it's defining for us what idol worship is not. Okay. Now the very next passage is chapter 32, the golden calf. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Was it truly? Anything but. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Ultimately, that's what it boils down to. We would rather rise up to play than to be present on Shabbat and be the watchman on the walls, to be the rock in the wall, to prevent the little foxes from entering in and nipping at the little blossoms in our midst. Because any fellowship, any congregation is bound to have some tender blossoms. This is what the fox is going for. And if we are absent, how can we prevent the little foxes from especially pulling them off into internet study? Y'all know that's dangerous, right? Okay, so from that passage about the Shabbat and Kitisa, you have a, a prayer that's done in the synagogue every Shabbat. It's called the Veshamru. You hear Shamar in there, which means to guard or to watch. And so it's about guarding and watching Shabbat. So they took those verses that we just read out of Kitisa, they incorporated them into a prayer, and they will sing this every Shabbat as a reminder as to why they are there. And it's a reminder to you as to why you were here. You are a watchman, you are a guard, and you are holding your place. You are not going to yield your place on Shabbat. For too many thousands of years, the people of Adonai have yielded their places on Shabbat. And so the foxes and the little foxes have had free reign. And it goes like this. And I'm not a great singer, but here goes.
Now, that's why you're here. You're watching. You're guarding. You're not yielding your place. You can eat the challah. You can drink the kiddush cup. And it might seem like something simple. You can light the candles. It might seem like something simple. What well, is pretty simple? But it's the whole world. The whole world is resting on you on Shabbat. What's that game, Jenga? You start trying to pull things out and see how long it takes for it to collapse. You start pulling people out of Shabbat and see how long it takes the body of Messiah to collapse. But what if he starts putting it back together again? What if he starts putting those rocks back in place? What if he starts calling up these stones, these precious stones, and he says, I need you in this wall? And you say, what can I do? How can I help the creator of the universe? He says, get up and go take your place in the wall. Go light the candles. Eat the challah. Drink the cup of sanctification. Because you were part of the vineyard, Israel. And when you drink that cup, whether it's grape juice or wine, doesn't matter. It's the fruit of the vine. You are saying, I am part of the vineyard, Israel, and I take upon myself my obligation, not my, oh, free will, sure. But see, once you come into covenant, this is not a choice. If you're part of the vineyard, you guard it. You don't sit there and say, oh, please take another cluster, just don't take me. That's not a vineyard. That's not a watchman. You drink that cup, and as you're drinking that cup, you say, I'm the vineyard, Israel. I have an identity. I have a job here. And we got to protect these little blossoms who haven't matured yet, who haven't even made into a cluster. It's important. Okay, here's the English, by the way. And the children of Israel shall keep the Shabbat, observing it throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now I know some of you have, may have brought relatives here who thought it was too Jewish. Has that ever happened to you? How many of you? No, don't. Don't tell me. <laughs> you thought it was too Jewish. It's not too Jewish. Maybe it's not Jewish enough. Because these prayers remind you of who you are in Messiah. This is your job. This is your responsibility to be here and to stand in the gaps and to protect one another. The text here, again, it goes back to the seventh day of creation. It's telling you that this commandment is even older than the Ten Commandments. This commandment is even older than the Shema. That this commandment goes back to the seventh day of creation because it's, it's explicit in the Shema what we should do. It's in the Ten Commandments what we should do. But the, the explicit text, remember, in the Ten Commandments is you shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment, right? It depends on your list, but pretty much that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, see, when you rest on the seventh day, that's what you're saying. I have no other gods before me. There is only one, and he is the one who defines my Sabbath. Therefore, I will rest on the Sabbath that he has commanded. And then you have the Shema. It tells you how to keep the commandments. So that's kind of the, the general idea. The first commandment tells you what. The greatest commandment, the Shema, it tells you how. But the Shabbat tells you when. They work together. Just like on um, the High Holy Days, you've got the last trump, 
on the Feast of Trumpets, but you've got the great trump on Yom Kippur. Has that ever confused you? Like, which one is the last one? It's not really the last one. The great one is the last one, but the last one is first. Those aren't in conflict. They work together. Each of those has a function, last, greatest. Well, we've got the first commandment, and we've got the greatest commandment. They're not adversarial. They work together to teach you something. And then the Shabbat comes in and says, this is when. This is when the sign is truly going to be upon you in this particular relationship, which is, I am my beloved. My beloved is mine, and I am his. There's going to be another one, the obverse of this. The, a lot of you might have it on your wedding rings. Anila dodi dodili. I am my beloved, and he is mine. Okay, this one is kind of in the reverse in the text. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies. So as you go through chapter 2 of the Song of Songs, what you see is three relationships. You see the watchman on the wall, the protector of the vineyard. You see the shepherd to the flock. That's reflected in this. But also reflected in it is the relationship between father and son or father and child. Those three relationships, not only are they emphasized, they're going to be intertwined, which is kind of a beautiful thing. So with these commandments, with the Shabbat commandments, with the greatest commandment, with the first commandment, these are exclusive commandments. I know we live in an age of diversity, but there's some things that are not diverse and were never intended to be diverse, and that is your relationship to the Holy One. He and he only should you serve. You should have no other gods, no other idols before him. So I am my beloved's and he is mine. That's describing to you this relationship of exclusivity. Who do you turn to when you need help? Do you turn to the Baals? No, you turn to him. Who does he turn to when he wants help? Does he go to a stranger? Or does he go to his own people? If he wants somebody to stand in the wall, does he go to a total stranger? Or does he go to somebody who is walking in the commandments and learning the commandments and says, guess what? It's time for you to learn about the Shabbat because I need you in this spot in the wall. Your spot's empty. I need you to get up in there. You may not feel comfortable at first. Might have to hew off some rough edges, right? There might be some football games we miss. Might be some fishing we don't do. Might be some horse shows we don't go to. Might be some Walmart sales we don't hit. Might be a few things that we just have to adjust ourselves in that wall. But he says, I need you here. And I need you worse than the football team does, right? I need you worse than Walmart does for sure. (laughs) But these commandments, they're showing us where we turn in a time of crisis. We're in an exclusive relationship. We don't turn to other gods, and he doesn't turn to other people. He might call other people to us as he assembles his body, but he doesn't typically go to a stranger. And... You're saying, well, how can I help him? I mean, am I really helping him? Well, there is a difference between him needing help, which he doesn't, and wanting help, which he does. And it's the same relationship you have with your own children. I use the example of repairing drywall. Would you say that's a usable skill for any young person, especially if they ever have to live in a dorm? (laughs) You don't need the child to help. You already know how to fix the drywall. But does the child need to learn how to fix the drywall? Right. It's not for the sake of you, the father. You already know. 
the child needs to know. This is important because this is how the child learns to take on the responsibility. So you're going to teach him how to trim and sand the hole, how to put the patch on there, how to put the, the goopy stuff on there, or use the putty knife, how to paint it, and so on. You're going to talk about all these things. Every step, you're going to talk about it. There's a procedure. The problem is sometimes your kids don't want to patch the drywall. Sometimes they're playing video games. Sometimes they're outside playing with their friends. Sometimes they're just hanging with their friends. They've got other things they would rather be doing. I don't feel called to patch drywall, Dad. I just want to dance. I just want to sing. Sometimes we have in our mind how we're going to serve him, and we don't hear him or we pretend not to hear him when he says, come learn how to patch drywall. You know, and I've heard all the stories. Well, I can worship God on the soccer field just as well as I can in a congregation. True story. Do you believe that? I wasn't buying it either, no. But as our children can be too busy with their own pursuits to learn these things he wants us to learn so that we can help him in the same way. If we get in our minds, this is how I'm going to serve you, we might miss him if he says, I would rather you serve over here right now. You can go back to that later, but for right now, I want you to learn how to patch drywall because learning how to deal with walls is important in being a believer. So let's get back to these uh, grapes. Micah 7.1. And what we're doing is we're going back into the footsteps prophecies of Micah to try to deconstruct here why it is so important to stand in the gap on Shabbat, to be part of those precious stones on the wall, to start to help protect the vineyard. The sages are going to link this chapter of Micah with the footsteps of Messiah. And he's pointing us back again to the Song of Songs that talks about the foxes and the little foxes from last week. And so we're looking at a vineyard that has been ruined by foxes. And he says, woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like, a, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat. That tells you the blossoms have already been plucked off. They couldn't even ripen into a cluster. He says, or a first ripe fig, which I crave. Those two things, the vineyard and the fig, those are the time when we are told, arise, my love. For the, the, the fig tree, the fruits of the fig tree, they are mature. It's ready to start picking them. And the blossoms of the vineyard have appeared. This is the spring and this is the Passover. And by the way, this is how you smash idols. You celebrate the Passover, you will smash idols. That's, we can kind of look at that maybe in the future, but that's exactly what you're doing. You are smashing idols when you celebrate the Passover. At this point, he says, there's not even a first, there's not even a sign of repentance. Again, fruits that are proper for repentance. This is the type of fruit we need to have. He says, not only aren't there clusters of grapes to eat, there's not even a first ripe fig. Not even a first right. There's not, a, not even a hint of repentance. He says, the godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. This tells you that there will be a time, there has been a time, where the Holy One was like a fruit picker, and he could not find one cluster of grapes that was mature. He could not even find mature repentance, not even a ripe fig. How does that happen, right? If people are told the Torah 
is no longer valid, how do they even know how to repent? How can you bring forth a fruit proper to demonstrate repentance if you don't think that commandment even applies to you? If you don't even think the seventh day is the Shabbat, how can you repent and keep Shabbat? You can't, you're still that unripe fig. You're not even first ripe. You're unripe. You're just kind of hanging there. You're, you're clinging. And then when the darkness comes in in Revelation and all of a sudden these, these unripe figs start to fall from the sky. So there's, it's telling you, there's a people, there are generations here. There's going to be a time span when there will not be a godly person who understands the fruits of repentance as it relates to the Torah. They understand Yeshua. There will be those. There will be those who understand Shabbat. There will be a barrier between them so that those who understand Torah and Shabbat will not understand Yeshua as the arm of salvation. And there will be those who understand Yeshua as salvation who will not understand the commandments and therefore can never ripen. See the problem? This is how we go without mature fruits of repentance. So as we look at what has spoiled these, it, it wasn't by chance. There were people, even back during the time of the apostles, they warned us, they said, the mystery of iniquity is already at work. It's already there at that time. So we've, in our studies, looked at several types of the foxes. We had the builder Pharaoh and the school children of Egypt. We had the builder Ahab. Remember they called Ahab the big pumpkin and his wife Jezebel the little pumpkin uh, in the literature. But we had the big fox Ahab and the little fox Jezebel. And then we saw their son Ahaziah walked in their ways. And so he was another little fox. You had later in the time of Yeshua, the, the Edomian Herodian dynasty. You had Herod the Great and then his son Antipas, who took the place of his father. They were both great builders. That's what they were known for. Herodias, the wife, who asked for the head of John the Baptist, and then Salome, who danced for it. We have a dynasty here. We have a family again. See how the foxes kind of work in families? Uh, they also identified Edom as one of the foxes. And of course, the Herodians were Edomians. They were very questionable Edomite converts to Judaism. And then Edom was thought to be Rome, one of the, the beast kingdoms. Rome is also known as a great builder. Do you see something in common running through here? They're great builders. They build things. And of course, Rome is linked back to Babylon because that's the head of the beast. But to show you that how even uh, Ahab was a builder, 1 Kings 22.39 says, Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house which he built and all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? For some reason, we need to know that Ahab was a builder. That's an important uh, piece of information because it fits in with the fox paradigm. What has been spoiling the vines? What has been spoiling even the fig tree? By design, these builders, these foxes, they have devised wicked plans in order to keep two sets of people apart so that they would not understand what was given to the other. 
And see, as long as those two brothers never exchanged the gifts that they were given to one another, then this group of people is never going to see Yeshua as the living word and salvation. And this group of people is never going to understand the Torah as the eternal word and Shabbat as an eternal sign throughout your generations. These two groups of people need to share some information. What's the seventh abomination? One who separates brothers. And that's what these foxes have in common, though. They're building something. We know Ahab built on Jeroboam's altars. Uh, Jeroboam set up two altars, uh, set up golden calves again. Oh, gee, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And, of course, alternate feast times. So he had them going to different places at different times. What is he doing? He's pulling the stones out of the wall. He's allowing the foxes to come in, like Ahab. And, and think of Elijah. He was in the time of Ahab. He ministered in the time of Ahab, and also his son Ahaziah, the little fox. And Elijah was corrected. Elijah says, I'm the only one. He says, no, you're not. There's 7,000 others who have not bent the knee to Baal. And of course, it's at that time, Elijah sent to go do what? Other than hide. Go get your replacement. When you think you're the only one, you might as well go ahead and find your replacement. That's pretty proud, isn't it? But you don't badmouth Israel. Don't complain about the complainers. Uh, he also had Obadiah during the time of Ahab. You have Obadiah hiding the prophets in the caves. So it's not that there were no real prophets in the time of Ahab, but they were in hiding. They were afraid to speak out. Even when Ahab and uh, Jehoshaphat, remember that interaction where Jehoshaphat says, isn't there a real prophet here? Because nobody wants to tell the truth to Ahab. That's why, you know, he supports with money the prophets who will tell him what he wants to hear. That's pretty much the American political system. But the fact that they're in hiding, the fact that they're sparse, there's not a lot of them, 7,000 really isn't a lot of people. They're avoiding they're having to be careful, just like right now. If I say the wrong thing, and this is being live streamed on YouTube, what happens overnight without appeal? If I use the wrong word and, and make somebody feel offended, then, right? Well, you know what? I'm not offended about the gospel. I might offend somebody. I'm not offended about the Shabbat. Are you offended about the Shabbat? Is there anything about Shabbat that offends you? What about the commandments? Do the commandments offend you? Well, they offend most of the world. We are in the minority. We are the ones who are sparse, avoiding saying the wrong thing, in hiding, trying to find places where we can still put the message out there without somebody just cutting us off. You see how the tables have turned? It's okay. The footsteps are coming. I'm not concerned. Too much. <laughs> so look at these parallel expressions. He says, there's not a cluster of grapes to eat. The godly person has perished from the land. Or, a first ripe fig which I crave, there is no upright person among men. Again, it's telling there's going to be a period where there's not going to be anybody who can help. So you need two legs to stand on if you're going to help. You need one leg that's solidly planted in the foundation of Yeshua is your salvation. 
But you also need that other leg planted solidly in the commandments and especially the keeping of Shabbat, which is the eternal sign. Without one of those, you're one-legged. You're not going to stand in the wall very long if you want to. You're easily pushed over, knocked over. We can see that pattern through history. So this is where we've had the problem maturing into the ripe fruits, the fruits that demonstrate true, full repentance. And by the way, fruits are works. They're things you do. Grace is not somehow adversarial to works. They work together. And in fact, I think it was John the Baptist who defined the fruits as demonstrating those things of repentance, the deeds of bring forth the fruits of repentance. If you don't do that, then you're not going to ripen. You'll just be sour, not sweet. The, the Arch Scroll commentary to this verse is really specific. It says, this is describing a period where there is a lack of teachers who will teach integrity. In other words, they either will not want to or will be afraid to teach integrity. When we can't teach biblical morals and ethics publicly without fear, we, we know we're getting close. We know we're getting close. So we've got this preservation of the fig trees in the vineyard. That's usually going to be through watchmen and watchwomen. Uh, and what they do is they build these secure fences and they stand guard for the predators. Ezekiel 22.30 says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, for the land, so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. How many people do you know who think the land of Israel is just kind of like a fairy tale you read about in the Bible? They don't really have this urge to put their feet in it. Like Abraham, everywhere you set your feet, you're claiming it for your inheritance and for your children. You're claiming resurrection for your offspring. You understand the Garden of Eden is right above here. This is what I promised Abraham, resurrection for his children. And so that's what I love about coming here because you do these prayers for the land. You recognize where home actually is. You haven't lost your, your sense of citizenship. That's your home. And so along with this revival, if we want to call it that, of mature figs and grape clusters, we also begin to have a longing for the land so that it will not be destroyed because we understand our part is to help build up those walls and stand on those walls so that that land will not be destroyed again. We don't just stand back and wait for the Jews to mess it up again. Instead, we intercede. That's why he said, there's nobody to stand in. Who are you praying for? Are you griping about the headlines you're seeing coming out of Israel about their secular government? And they're trying to destroy, actually destroy the vineyards of Samaria and Judea? Or are you interceding for the sake of the land so it won't be destroyed. You should be praying for them, standing in that gap. Ladies, can we participate? Can we be watch people on the wall? We don't want to be watch men, for sure. We're not confused. It says in Nehemiah 3.12 that there were women who took place in the rebuilding of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. That's pretty incredible, right? Because he doesn't have to put this stuff in here. And then he does. It says, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the official of the half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. So daughters, we have an obligation too. We have to be just as Shabbostic as our husbands. 
We have to feel that obligation. Our duties might be a little bit different, but it's still incumbent upon us. It's still part of our obligation. But here's what's happening. Micah 6.16, if we back up a little bit, because remember, these, these Micah prophecies do pertain to the footsteps. And it talks about how the house of Ahab is going to be destroyed. Now that we know the pattern of the house of Ahab, everybody talks about Jezebel, but you can't have a Jezebel without an Ahab. Ahab's pulling the strings. What do you say this morning? It's typically, it's reversed. If you look at the personality types, it's typically the opposite of this. At any rate, it doesn't matter whether our role is Ahab or Jezebel, we don't want to be that right? It says, the statutes of Omri and every work of the house of Ahab are maintained, and you walk by their plans. What did they do? They maintained the idols in the times of Jeroboam, the alternate altars of the golden calf, and the alternate times of the feasts. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision, and you will suffer the taunting of my people. People who are taunting you now won't be taunting last. If they're making fun of you for the feast, say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing yet. So the fox will be destroyed. That's the good news that we have. This idol worship, and a lot of it, it has to do, again, like we said last week, with the ships and the commercial system. In my mind right now, the, the commercials and the ads we're seeing are becoming way more dangerous than the programs we're watching, unless you're just picking bad programs on purpose right? Watch a cooking show. See if something comes on as an ad that has nothing to do with the innocence level of a cooking show. Not that there's not stuff in the cooking shows today I don't really want to see either. It's all been infested. But commercialism is what drives us. They're constantly collecting your data. That's what the fox does. Constantly profiling you. But you know what? The Holy One doesn't want you to be profiled. You can't be. It's that simple. So don't see boogers on every corner. So this brings us to the seven abominations of the wicked lamp. At the middle of it, at the heart of it, is a heart that devises wicked plans. He says, you have done according to the plans of the house of Ahab. The plans of the house of Ahab, the fox, they are not random. They are not by chance. They are by design. It's an ancient design, and it's still in place, and it's gathering steam because the commercial system is gathering steam. Everything you do is attached to an ad. So he says, basically, the the designs of the house of Ahab, this is going to be judged because it goes back to the heart, the heart that devises wicked plans. But how are they doing it? How are they accomplishing it? Well, in Micah, it says, all of them wait, lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net concerning evil. Both hands do it well. Both of them. How do you type? Both hands. How do young people text? <laughs> Both hands. There's an equivalency of expression here. For your hands are defiled with blood, Isaiah 59.3 says, and your fingers with wrongdoing. Your lips have spoken deceit, your tongue mutters wickedness. So again, equivalent expressions. Your hands are defiled with blood. Your lips have spoken deceit. Your hands and your lips are connected. You say, if I just typed it, I didn't say it. Yes, you did. You said it. 
and your fingers with wrongdoing is the same as your tongue mutters wickedness. Well, if your fingers typed it on the keyboard, you muttered it. You said it. You realize there is a record that is going to be placed before the heavenly court that has not been coerced. We did it of our own volition. Everything you have ever typed on the internet, it's talking about a net. All of them lie in wait. Each of them hunts the other with a net. You think people aren't watching you when you post something on the internet? Every word. They're looking and seeking every single word. They're collecting it. They're storing it. And both hands do it well. So the words that go out there on the internet, just because they don't seem tangible when you turn the laptop off doesn't mean they aren't. They are being recorded by your enemies, by the way. Not just the heavenly court. Also being recorded by your enemies. But here's the thing. It says death and life are in the hand, in the Hebrew, English says power of the tongue. Death and life, it says, are in the hand of the tongue. The tongue has a hand. Well, on those seven abominations, you have a proud look, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. You see how they're related? Your tongue has hands. Your tongue sheds blood. Which would be really cute, you know, if somebody's tongue just sprouted a hand. <laughs> no, that wouldn't be cute. Don't do that. But what is it telling us? If we're looking for the characteristics of the footsteps of Messiah, we're looking at a generation that's going to have lots more bloody words than any previous generation could. They are going to be enabled to speak bloody words because it's going into a net. It's all going into a net, good and bad. So you've got these lip fruits of blood that are going to be abundant, but there's going to be much less in the terms of good fruit much less in terms of those guarding the wall, because often those guarding the wall are going to be distracted by other topics. They will begin to speak off topic. And all of a sudden, now they're down in the mud with all the other bloody tongues, all the other bloody hands. So it seems that we've got two choices when we use the internet. Repentance to obedience. Those words can be typed in with both hands or unrepentance to disobedience, typed in with both hands. And it's all caught in the net. And then what do we have? A sorting of the good and the bad fish, right? We're creating our own word records. But here's how it works. Uh, as we're looking for these footsteps, it says the prince asks also the judge for a bribe. And bribe in Hebrew is shechad, shechad. And a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright like a thorn hedge. And so the, the Midrash and some of the other rabbinic sources, they go on and they comment. They break some of these words down. And I've kind of created a, a summary of what they're saying about this prophecy. Of course, shechad, if you look at the first definition, it's not a bribe. It's a donation. It's a donation. It can. Charity. Yes, my charity. <laughs> but see how these, these big men, because it talks about the great man. In the time that this is written, a great man becomes great because he's wealthy. So it's going to be the wealthiest men. 
that are involved in this. I, don't, I hate to even call it a conspiracy because it's not secret. It's saying right here, it's not secret. It's vocalized, it's declared, and it's made known publicly. They are telling you exactly what they're doing. They're not hiding it. Why? Because the internet records all things. You know exactly what they're doing right now. We don't have to pin a fox stamp on them. We know who they are and we know what they're doing. And they're getting bigger and bigger. They're gobbling and gobbling and gobbling by the day. And so they'll begin to work together with government. They'll work hand in hand with government. Of course, we don't have a king, but we do have rulers. We have elected officials, but it seems like once they get in there, you, you have to move heaven and earth to get them out. And you're like, who in the world elected these people? Don't go to that neighborhood. Uh, if that's any indication. But what they say is that the ruling officials, the court officials, administrators, people, and places of powerful decisions, and wealthy men. They're going to weave together what their plan is. They have a Fox plan, and they are going to use their power and their prestige to bring this plan together and declare it publicly. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be the Freemasons where you have to try to figure out what they're doing behind closed doors. They are going to tell you publicly what they are doing. They're not going to hide it. When these men make donations... You know exactly where their donations are going, and you know exactly what they are supporting, and you know it's not good. What they are supporting is wickedness under the title of a charity. And so they're going to use not just bribes, that's going to work too, but they're also going to use donations to kind of sanction it. And so here's some bullet points from what the Art Scroll Commentary says about this. Officials will trade favors when they are in danger of prosecution or censure. It's fairly recent. The ruler of the land publicly praises court rulings that please him or condemns those that don't all the time. Judges pervert rulings for the king for rewards of office all the time. Powerful men warn of misfortune that will occur if the donation is not paid. They will coerce payments all the time. The weaving of corruption will make getting out of this system, they say, as difficult as removing thorns embedded in wool. We're stuck in it. And it says even the good that they do will be tainted. We know what they're donating to. We know what they're supporting. Confusion will come in because of the inaccuracy of false prophets. You ever feel like somebody prophesied something that didn't come to pass and might be confusing people as to how the end times are all going to come together? Moral standards are so low that those who are typically expected to keep their word do not. When's the last time a politician told the truth? Husbands and wives betray one another as adulterers and adulteresses. Not news, but apparently the, the numbers will increase. Employees will betray employers, and arrogance will be at an all-time high. So here's what Yeshua said, and we'll close with this. Yeshua said, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. People like Yeshua till he says this, and then they just kind of leave that out of the conversation. He's serious about this. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Ouch. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. So, Revelation 6.3. I know we talk about the four horsemen. At a future time, we can talk about the four craftsmen and how Yeshua fits into at least three of those four roles of the four craftsmen, Elijah being the other. But Revelation 6.3 says, When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Does that sound exactly like what Yeshua said? He said a sword's coming. And so these four craftsmen that are prophesied in Zechariah, they're builders. That's what craftsmen mean. It means they're builders. Think of all the fox builders we've had in history. But the four builders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are coming. I believe three of, at least three of those are Yeshua, just based on the linguistic evidence and matching passages like this. I believe he's the anointed one of war. I believe he is the king of righteousness. I believe he is the one with the keys to death. I believe he is coming to build up his people, to find out which of his precious stones is willing to take a stand. You have been called to this not lightly. You have now obligated yourself through covenant because, again, this is what the rabbis said in the last tractate of the Mishnah. They said, in the last days, many Gentiles will come. They'll put on tzitzit. They'll start to celebrate the feast. And they say, when the tribulation really comes, they're going to rip off anything that looks Jewish. They're going to kick over their Sukkot, and they're going to run away. They're going to leave the holes in the wall. But that's not us. If that is you, you'd best leave early. You'd best leave early. Just make up your mind. I'm going to go to my place. I'm going to stand there, wherever that hole in the wall is that I should have been. It doesn't matter if you come there late. It doesn't matter if you come there when you're born and never leave it. It doesn't matter if you come there when you're 86 years old and finally find your place. You're there. Don't ever, ever leave that hole in the wall again. Don't let those foxes in because the real builder, Yeshua, they said, he was the son of a carpenter. You put that back into Hebrew, it's the same word as the four craftsmen. He's going to overturn that. He's going to destroy the house of Ahab. He's going to destroy it quickly. Even so, come quickly. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.